This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Dear Prudence. 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 Do you think that I should contact him again? Help. Help. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Hello and welcome back to the Dear Prudence show once again. And as always, I am your host, Daniel Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio is a guest I have been trying to get on the show for two years and some change. We'll get to her in a minute. But first, I'm very excited to announce to all of you that I'm going on tour. This March, I'm going to be doing live shows in Seattle, San Francisco, Denver, D.C., and Brooklyn. In each city, I will be joined by smart and funny friends like Nicole, Jasmine, Grace, and more. I also hope to meet many of you on tour. That sounded so formal. I hope to meet some of you on tour. That sounded better. For more information and to get tickets, go to slate.com slash live. Now, when it comes to this guest, she has been near impossible to pin down, and she has sent me easily the greatest bio I've ever gotten to read on the air. Here it is. Maddie is my friend. You don't know her. Hi, Maddie. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank Thank you. Thank you for that incredible introduction. It was written by a beautiful genius. Oh. (laughs) Um, I have been so excited to have you on the show because I think I'm correct in saying that you are my most judgmental friend. Very judgmental, yes. And all of your judgments are right and true. Yeah. I'm very true of heart. I I, I do Strong of will. Strong of will. Very (laughs) strong of will. Um, I, I really feel like by the end of this, we might never get letters again just because we'll have solved all the problems in the world. That's that's the goal. That's the dream, really. It's always the dream. And I think that this has been an episode long in the making and it's been worth the wait and I'm very excited. Actually, I'm really excited for you to just read this first letter. It, <laughs> I'm glad. Like, yeah, no pressure. Very it's, much feels it's, like a... It's just going to be the best show ever. Mm-hmm. So subject is, my boyfriend thinks I'm perfect. My boyfriend has been in love with me since we were both teenagers. We're now in our mid-20s. About a year and a half ago, I began to share his feelings, and we started dating. He is the most wonderful boyfriend I could possibly ask for, and he is always telling me that I'm the perfect person and can do no wrong. The problem is I'm not. When we get into fights, even ones that are entirely my fault, he blames himself and ignores me when I try to tell him afterwards I was being unreasonable. I'm worried about what this is doing to him and also what will eventually happen when he inevitably realizes that I'm a human with flaws. What do I do to make him realize I'm not perfect? I feel like this is a problem you might have had at some point <laughs> in your life. I mean, I do have a husband who worships me. <laughs> no. It's true. I think, but like, I like the question, like, what can I do to make him realize I'm not perfect? Like, you can't make him realize anything. So I don't think that's like really the problem. But it does seem like maybe there could be progress in terms of like, I need you to stop saying I'm perfect. Yeah. Even if you believe it, just say it quietly in your own head. It's one of those things, it sounds like a compliment, but it's super not a compliment. Like that's not exhausting. It's not something that like to bring you together. Like it's like kind of like a way of like disengaging in Mm -hmm. like the fight or like in closeness or anything where it's like, well, you just can't understand. Like it's kind of like I'm so tormented and you're so perfect. Yeah. And so it's like you have to stop saying that because it doesn't make me feel good. 
you know, to the letter writer. Yeah, and it also doesn't mean they don't fight, right? Like, (laughs) if he really believed she was perfect, they would never fight. Because as soon as they disagreed, he would say, well, she's perfect. Yeah. I now agree with her. Like, yeah, it's like assuming there's no gray areas. But So I think, like, yeah, you can't make him realize anything, but you can definitely ask him to stop saying that. And then tell him how it makes you feel. Like, it doesn't make you feel perfect. It doesn't make you feel better about yourself. Like, maybe it's meant to or... Um, I could see how it's like, it's kind of like, yeah, it's withdrawing from like whatever issue you're engaging with. Right. Well, and, you know, part of the like underlying issue is this idea that like her boyfriend's been in love with her for at least like seven or eight years, possibly longer. And she only caught up to him about a year and a half ago. Yeah. That's a long time to have a really one-sided relationship with her in his head. Yeah. And so for like the for way longer than they've actually been together, he's kind of been in a relationship with her in his head. Yeah. Part of me wonders actually like what her role in that is. You know, like there has to be something of like the one sidedness that like she enjoyed. Like there's it's not often that these like unrequited love things like you end up being like, actually, I love that you're obsessed with me. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I mean. <laughs> Yeah, either you both pretty quickly realize it at the same time yeah. and you move forward yeah. or one person's doing a lot on their own and the other person is either totally oblivious or kind of getting something out of it. Um, and I, I don't know exactly which one of those dynamics this particular relationship fell into, um, but it will be good for both of you, I think, to kind of let go of that time right? where he was in love with you by himself. Totally. Um, and some of the, like, uh, patterns he may have fallen into that helped get him through that weird seven-year period where you were his future girlfriend. And he was, like, time traveling as fast as he could to get you to catch up with him. Um, and, and to kind of talk about, like, you know, yeah, like you said, like, yeah. I'm so glad that you think I'm so wonderful. When you say that in a fight, it makes me feel like we can't have a conversation. Right. It makes me feel like you don't really know me and I feel pushed away. Mm-hmm. I don't think you really want to do that to me. And so maybe like saying that out loud, he can realize like, oh, saying you're perfect doesn't actually make you feel good. I can stop. Yeah. I, I, I think the dynamic here is pretty clearly a, a heterosexual dynamic. Yeah. Um, could 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 be otherwise, but usually people mention it if it's relevant. Sure. So at, at any rate, whether whatever's going on. Um. Yeah. This, just, co- yeah. This is this is this is classic Seth Cohen and Summer Roberts. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, this is one hundred percent. But she kind of liked that. She kind of liked that he was obsessed with her. Yeah. Summer you loved know? it. Like that. Yeah. It was like different than anyone she had ever been with. Mm-hmm. And she was just really into the fact that, you know, she was the only one for him until that girl. What was the girl with the blue hair? Well, first there was the sailboat. <sighs> Summer Breeze. <laughs> That was her first rival. Um, do you mean Anna, the girl who was from somewhere made up like Philadelphia or something? Yeah, yeah. And she had that really squishy pickle voice? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and blue hair, right? Yeah, I mm, I feel like she was blonde the first time around. Maybe. But she was like gone. Like an edgy haircut. She was gone by Nana Christmas, I feel. Yeah, it didn't last Christmica. long. Christmica. At any rate, the point is, <laughs> Seth and Summer are endgame. <laughs> and that show should never have gone off the air. And good luck to you, letter writer. Um, I hope that uh, things work out. I would talk to him. I would, you know, I would talk to your boyfriend, tell him to stop. If there's a part of it that, you know, your part of it is like if you are secretly enjoying this, 
you need to like kind of come up to that. Otherwise, let the past go where he was obsessed with you and you weren't that into him and um, just move forward with you need to really listen to me. Yeah. And the, the thing about like he ignores you afterwards when you try to tell him that you were being unreasonable, if that persists and if you tell him like I really don't like this and it's like talking to a, a brick wall, you know, that is maybe more cause for concern. Like yeah. my hope is that he's just a little clueless and thinks this is like – how you treat a girlfriend. But if you're like, I actually hate this, and he's like, nope, I'm doing everything great, and he keeps on doing it, you know, that might become a bigger problem. That's bad. Yeah. This next one... I'm so excited for you to read this I I actually, now that I think about it, I feel like the first one was you, and the second one was me. Maddie and I, to be clear, have known each other since we were about 16 years old. And, like, one of the first things we did was take an international trip together, and I packed nothing and just, like, stole all her socks. Um, There was nothing. Yeah. Yeah. You were just this wonderful, stable force. And I was just like— I was mad about it. I I wasn't, like, generously like, oh, here's some socks. I was like, you can borrow one pair, but also get away. No. Like, knowing you as I would later do— I'm amazed. I'm astonished at my own like chutzpah that I was like, can I have some? Like, I would never try to borrow your socks now. I would never do that. Okay. So the subject is tired of my own lies. Maddie, please calm down. I need to read this letter and be professional. Sorry. I'll keep it professional. Thank you. Dear Prudence, in college, I was lonely, awkward, and desperate to be liked. In order to have something interesting to say at parties, I started telling stories about myself that weren't exactly true. For example, my old place of work was once the site of a dramatic police chase with an infamous criminal. I wasn't working there at the time, but I told the story as if I'd been there. I also told stories about traveling through France with my best friend as a teenager, when in reality we were there supervised with other kids as part of an exchange student program. Once I got more comfortable with myself in my early 20s, I stopped telling these foolish lies. I'm 33 now. Unfortunately, several of my closest friends and my now husband were in my life for this phase and think these stories are true. They've asked me to retell them at later events, and I did. They're crowd pleasers. Meaning that friends I've met later on have also heard them, and they come up occasionally. I don't want to keep these lies going anymore. Should I come clean? If so, what do I say? Or do I just refuse to tell them anymore and let them fade from memory? But what excuse would I have to stop telling a great story? What do you think? So I think it's so interesting you wrote into your own show. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, With a made-up husband. <laughs> and made myself one year older because I am not 33. I am 32. To hide your identity. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I, I, yeah, I, I can relate to. What I have to say to this letter writer is <laughs> more likely than not, mm-hmm. your friends and husband know that your tales were perhaps tall tales. Or slightly exaggerated. Or slightly, that the details were fudged. And they enjoy your telling of them because you're a storyteller and you are not boring, as you think, at parties and things like that. You're very fun to talk to. Um, so you don't really need to keep up, like, the comedy act anymore. And, you know, if you're really concerned about it, and the next time somebody asks you to tell the story, you know, you could tone it down. You could say, oh, you know, I my you could talk, tell, be like, oh, I don't really want to tell any more tall tales. 
Yeah, I, I, I do think you have a couple of options. Like nothing you describe here is the kind of thing where if you talked about it honestly with your friends, your husband, they would be like, I kind of feel like I don't know you. <laughs> yeah. I'm shocked. This really changes the kind of person that I think you are. I don't think it changes. Like it doesn't change like a lot about what people know about you. Yeah. You know, it's not like I didn't less any of these stories were about like something that like like your family, you know what I mean? It's not like I'm an orphan, but your parents are like secretly in like San Ramon. Like Right. Yeah. 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 So like you did go to France as a teenager. You have previously, when you were in college, exaggerated just how independently you were traveling through France. What we're saying is is like we are fine with these lies. These are <laughs> these are venal. Like these are not mortal. Um that said, if it bugs you and you feel uncomfortable, I think talk to your husband first. Yeah. And just say, like, I feel embarrassed about this. It, it comes from the fact that I, like, felt uncomfortable around people and awkward in parties in college. And then it just kind of became a thing and people kept asking me. But, like, uh, you know, I only heard about the chase secondhand from my coworkers. I didn't start working there for another couple of months. Totally. Um, and in France, I, you know, I was there on a supervised trip. And your husband's going to be able to say, some variation of, oh, I'm sorry, That's that sounds stressful. Thanks for telling me. It's a little goofy. I love you. You're fine. You didn't you didn't invent France. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> yeah. you didn't you didn't like tell people there's this country called France and people speak <laughs> French there and it's not real and everyone's like, "Oh, you are responsible for pretending there's France." Like <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know. Like that would be a big lie that you would have to really deal with a lot of fallout. But I think talk to your husband first and say, you know, it would, it would help me if you just wouldn't ask me to tell that story again. I know it's not a huge deal, but, you know, it just reminds me of that awkward kid that I was. And yeah, I feel bad. Yeah, I think just talk to people if you feel uncomfortable. I think just also know that it's pretty low stakes. Yeah, you could do the same thing with your friends. I have to say, if I were at a party and somebody was called on to recount a story that happened like 10, 15 years ago and they said, you know, I feel embarrassed about this, but you guys, I actually didn't work there until the next summer and I heard about it from my coworkers and then they went ahead and told the story, I'd still be entertained. I wouldn't think yeah. this person cannot be trusted. Yeah. Um, what a what a weird, terrible person. Never inviting them again. I think you're I, I think you're being really hard on yourself and it's going to be OK. I think it's going to be OK. And I, the only thing I probably wouldn't do is to just say, like, I don't want to tell that story anymore without any explanation. That just because be just because people are then going to say, why not? What do you mean? Yeah. Um, and then you might feel even more on the spot than otherwise. So, you know. Yeah, I think it will be fine. Talk to talk to your husband privately. Talk to a friend or two. Um, and then if somebody asks you on the spot, you can say, you know, I'll tell the story. But, guys, it's time to come clean. Yeah. And or, it'll be like a fun know. dishy moment. You They'll can even like, ask for your husband for help and like demurring a little. Mm -hmm. Yeah. If you really, if you, you know, in a big crowd situation, it could be a little bit more awkward. Yeah. Like, you could also frame it as the story, right? Yeah. Like, guys, I need to tell you something. When I was in college, I like pretended to have worked there during a car chase and I hadn't and now that's the story and yeah. like again this is not the category of the kind of lie that are going to make people reevaluate what kind of person you are agreed this next one by the way before we <laughs> jump into it reminds me of that reddit post that makes the rounds every once in a while of the woman who had posted like my fiance proposed to me and the ring is so bad that not only can I not wear it it's making me reevaluate like his character Mm -hmm. And whether or not I want to spend my life with him. Do you remember this one? Yeah, it actually made me think of Sex in the City. Because mm -hmm. it was the sort of thing where it was like, <laughs> everyone was like, I'm sure you're just being kind of shallow. And then she's like, here is a picture of the ring. And well, it was yeah. like, oh, 
Oh, I get it. It's like it was not amethyst, amber. Yeah. And it was it looked like something you would get out of a supermarket coin operated little toy thing. I felt like a, like a, like an art fair, like an art and wine festival in the summer. It's very upscale. <laughs> it was it was horrible. It was bad. Um, what was it on Sex and the City again? What did he get her? A dress or a? No, no, no. He the ring. It was the ring. Oh yeah, the ring that. Um, because Miranda helped pick it out. Which but one? Miranda was like, I'm pregnant and I'm on hormones. I'm, I don't know what I'm, I'm doing. pregnant. <laughs> I, I can't tell what rings are good. I'm too pregnant. Was it Aiden? Uh, it was Aiden. Oh, because it was the brown diamond. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And everyone was like, brown. <laughs> it was bad. Diamond. He's artsy. But yeah. yeah. It was. Yeah, it's hard to believe that a furniture designer would have that bad an eye for detail and jewelry. I mean, the man made chairs. Like, it doesn't take a lot of. Your jewelry chairs. Interchangeable. You read this letter, please. You make one thing, you make anything. (laughs) Okay. Subject. Long subject. I love my husband, but I don't like my wedding ring. Dear Prudence, I married my wonderful husband over 15 years ago. Here's my admittedly trivial predicament. I have never really liked my engagement and wedding rings. My husband proposed to me on the other side of the world, quite romantically, and he bought the set on his own, chosen with only the input of the mall store clerk. Nothing against mall store jewelry stores. But I want to make it clear that this isn't a family heirloom. By the time I returned to the U.S., it was too late to exchange it, and I didn't want to hurt his feelings. It's flashier than something I would have chosen. I have simple tastes, and to me, the rings feel a little garish. They're just not me, even though I've tried to learn to love them. I adore my husband, and what the ring symbolize is far more important to me than any fashion statement. However, I can't help wishing my wedding ring was a piece that better reflects my personality, one that I love seeing on my finger every day as much as I love seeing my husband every day. We have an anniversary coming up. Would it be terrible of me to suggest he give me a new ring? What I have in mind is small and less expensive than my current set, which I would keep, of course, even if I don't wear it daily. A few years ago, I went from wearing both my rings to just a band, and my husband didn't mind at all. However, asking for a completely different ring seems like a bigger deal. Will I hurt his feelings? Will people around us read something into it? I don't care if they do, but perhaps he would. Am I just being selfish or superficial? So I feel like I should preface this with, I come from a family where every Christmas, every birthday, every gift-giving opportunity, like it's, it's at this point become a joke that everyone starts with, now I have the receipt. If you want to return it, like, please, like, it's almost like we beg each other to return gifts. Like, please, I want you to hate it and pick something that you will love. So, like, yeah. I think my mom has switched out her engagement ring every five or so years for something cheaper each time. That's and incredible. Just, like, I think she's now on, like, literally like an anthropology ring that was like, she's just like, I just like it. It's just nice. And she's thrilled. Incredible. I, so I, I understand where the letter writer's coming from. Uh, some people like, and also like my husband, very sentimental about things, mm-hmm. sentimental about stuff. I'm not sentimental about stuff, but it like reminds me that I need to be more gentle sometimes when I'm like, we're throwing everything away mm-hmm. um, because some people attach sentimental value to things. Uh, so, you know, you have to know if your husband's like that or not. But I do think there's like a little bit, there's a little bit of like, you have to remind yourself that life isn't like you know, the movies. Like, you want to think that, like, oh, everyone will 
you know, preserve their wedding dress and keep it forever and it'll always be this magical thing. And your ring is a reflection of your relationship. If you miss a birthday, like that's a sign you've hit rock bottom. a circle that goes on. You know what I mean? So it doesn't have to be so Hallmark card. Like, you know, styles come and go. Like utility comes and goes with like what jewelry you wear. Yeah. I think the thing to just talk to your husband about it. Yeah. And you do have reason to believe that your husband is not going to be offended by your just bringing it up. Yeah. So I think you can, uh, you know, kind of say, I want to raise this issue. I'm a little anxious because my main priority is for you to know that, like, I love you. I'm thrilled to be married to you. Yes. This has not been, like, a huge weight that I've been, like, keeping a secret for years and years and years. Right. And don't open with, I don't like this ring. Yeah. I think think that's, like, you know, you don't need to open with that. But Mm -hmm. I think if you want something simpler to wear, like, there are practical reasons behind it. Yeah. Uh, You know, if he's, like... You said, like, you stopped wearing your engagement ring. You just wear your wedding band. You're like, I want something to wear with my wedding band that's not, like, a full-on, you know, yeah, rock. I, I think you have excellent reason to think that your husband um, will not see this as, like, you know, step one in secretly divorcing him. Yeah. Or, like, disrespecting the work that he put into it or or dismissing uh, how romantically he proposed to you. Or, like, or other people. I don't think anyone else will read anything into your wedding set being different. Yeah. People yeah. reset stones all the time. They like your mom's wearing an anthropology ring. Yeah. Now. Tastes change. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, people lose rings. People decide they want something else. People, you know, pawn rings. People <laughs> get better jobs and make more money and buy bigger rings. I don't know. Like, yeah, people Lots are doing things. all sorts of things with rings. Yeah, I don't. I don't think, like, if it were again to take it back to the OC, oh, yeah. if if huh? Kristen Cohen suddenly <laughs> yeah. had a very different engagement ring on, we would know that she and Sandy were about to go through another big subplot. Well, yeah, but luckily for you, letter writer, I don't think you're Kristen Cohen. Yeah, she went through a lot. She went through too much. Oh, Julie, Julie Cooper actually was probably a better. Um, <laughs> A better person to choose, although she would never have asked for a smaller ring. No. Oh, I love Julie Cooper. You're doing great, letter writer. Congratulations on loving your husband. And, you know, that sounds fantastic. And I think you guys will be able to have this conversation easily. We're not worried. Okay. Yeah. So I we, I feel like we do need to get worried about somebody. Problems, like, so far I'm not worried about anyone. No. Okay. So I think, I think <laughs> we are able to upgrade now into slightly more serious problems. The subject of this next letter is, she's my best friend. I'm her only friend. Dear Prudence, my girlfriend and I have been together for six years. Most of our friends are from college where we met, but she feels like they're more mine than hers. And while I've made a few friends since then, she really hasn't made any. As a result, she hardly sees anyone outside of work unless I initiate it. I think she values being alone more than I do, but she recently mentioned that she doesn't feel ready to get married because she doesn't have anyone to be in her bridal party. I don't feel ready to get married either, but not for that reason, and it breaks my heart that that's why. She's lonely. I feel like she would be happier if she spent time with other people when I'm not around, but I can't make that happen. I feel like there's nothing I can do to help. Is there? Uh, yeah, I, I do feel—I think it's it's— Good to be concerned here. I think the answer, though, like there are a few, like there are layers here. Like mm-hmm. I think the first thing I want to kind of tap back to is like the, oh, I'm not ready to get married because I don't have 
you know, friends to stand up with me. I think the supportive thing to kind of turn to in that case is like your wedding doesn't have to look like any particular thing. Right. So I think, you know, being able to affirm that in your relationship, be like, that is not about like our timing is not about that. And when it comes to our wedding, like, you know, it can be just us up there. Like we don't need to stand up in front of a bunch of people. We could have a ceremony in private and then do a party. You know what I mean? Like it can look however you want it to look. So I think like kind of like, that layer of pressure should be taken away. Like, if that's something she wants, that's kind of, that's different. Um, but if it's, like, fear of it not fitting a certain picture, that's, like, another thing. Yeah, and I was just thinking, it doesn't sound like this is something that you two have talked about a lot. It sounds like a dynamic you're both aware of. Yeah. But you say, like, I think she values being alone more than I do. Yeah. But it doesn't sound like you have a lot of clarity there. So I think it might be an opportunity to ask her some questions. Right. And the questions should be, like, you know, um, how long have you kind of been thinking about this? Um, do you like being alone, in fact? Or do, yeah. you, do you feel like you you don't know how to make new friends? Or even more simply, you know, like when your girlfriend stays home and you've gone out talking to her about what she did while you were out. Like mm-hmm. it could be like there, you know, she, if she's like having fun at home by herself, like if there's some hobby or like something to do or like some other interesting thing, like – you know, it's one thing to kind of be like, oh, she's alone, so she must be lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, some people really enjoy solitude. So, like, just being like, was she sad she stayed home or was she happy she stayed home? And right. I think those are, like, two different things. And it's not clear to me, like, if it's a guess or if it's a reality. Yeah. And and to remind yourself that you can help ask her clarifying questions. Yeah. You can encourage her to uh, reach out to friends she kind of casually already has and deepen those friendships. Right. You can encourage her to try to meet new people, but don't make yourself um, both her partner and also the person whose job it is to get her more friends. Yes. Because that, I think, would be setting yourself up to feel way too responsible for her happiness. Yeah. Well, so then there is kind of that layer where, you know, I think somebody who some oftentimes in relationships and it's I think it's oftentimes the man in like a heterosexual relationship will not have a lot of other people he can turn to for his feelings and support. Mm -hmm. And I think that can be a burden on the other partner. And so like if that's kind of what's happening here, like there is a way to frame it where it's like I need you to find someone who you can like also talk about your problems and worries with so that I'm not sharing that burden like by myself. Right, right. Because some of this stuff isn't a burden and some of it can be. Yeah. Um, And so I think trying to tease out the difference between like, of course, as her partner, you're mostly just like you feel compassion for her that she doesn't have friends and wants some Mm -hmm. um, because you love her and you want her to have a full and like round and rich life. Mm -hmm. Um, And it could also be that there are times when you feel like I'm sort of the only person that she opens up to or Mm -hmm. asks for help. Or talks to when she's feeling down. And while as her partner, I want to do the lion's share of that work. Um, at a certain point, if I feel like I am her partner and her only real friend, that's too much. Yeah, that's too much. I have been in that relationship and I was not – it's not a good It's not a good idea. I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah. It's really hard when you're dating somebody who doesn't have friends and doesn't have anyone else that they talk to. Yeah. Even a journal and – um it's really a lot. A journal or a professional. Yep. Um, but then I think along the lines of, like, how can I help? Like, I think useful suggestions are, like, any sort of, like, hobby or interest she has, you know, supporting that 
and supporting that in like maybe a more like public way, even mm-hmm. if it's like just online mm-hmm. um, or, you know, thinking of yourself, like when you go out with friends, like what would be something easier for her socially that she would want to participate in, you know, like like going to the movies in a group yep. might be easier. Yes. It's like, you know, less direct talking. Um, but then you're like still out of the house and still with others and you still feel like the camaraderie or whatever. Yep. Yeah. So, you know, ask questions, ask these questions openly and compassionately so that she doesn't feel like you're saying, I have a ton of friends. Why can't you catch up? But then in addition to that, you know, don't don't like scale back on your own friendships because you feel guilty. Yeah. Don't try to make getting her a good friend your job. Um, Recognize that all you can do in this is support and encourage, not um, make something happen. And ask, too, like, you know, you say she feels like they're more your friends than hers. Is that because she likes them a little but doesn't isn't wild about them? Is that Mm -hmm. because she feels like they like you better? Is that just because she feels a little self-conscious about her ability to make friends and you can kind of help encourage her? Like, well, actually, I know that, like, Dana really likes you. What if you and Dana go to the movies together next week and, like, I stay home? Yeah. Um, There's I think there's a lot of room here for. We have more questions. Yes. And that's good. So I, I think it's it's worth paying attention to. Some people have very few close friends and they're thrilled about that because they just love a, a sort of solitary life. And if that were the case, I would not necessarily encourage you to be worried. But it seems pretty clear that um, she's not thrilled with the state of events. And I'll just say, you know, if you guys – you say you've been together for six years. You met in college. So I'm guessing you're in your mid, maybe late 20s. Mm-hmm. A lot of letters I get are from people at that age saying, I have a hard time making new friends, you know. Um, yeah. I'm it's really... not like college when everyone was just like around and also really excited to make new friends. Yeah. Like everyone I know lives within a like three mile radius. Yeah. And we all have very flexible schedules. Yeah. And, you know, we get to socialize a lot. Um, that changes pretty dramatically for a lot of people at- after college. So, um it's it's not a problem that she faces all by herself. Like, there are other people with the same issue, and um, maybe they'll find one another. Yeah. All right. This I'm still not next, worried. yeah. <laughs> Dang it. Okay. This new goal is to get Maddie worried. I want I want to see a Everyone furrow will be in your fine. brow. <laughs> all right. You you get to read this oh, next okay. one. Oh, sorry. Subject: Unsure and insecure. My partner and I have been together for a few years and I have been having serious talks about and have been having serious talks about spending the rest of our lives together. One thing he has made abundantly clear is that he wants children. I had never wanted kids prior to this relationship, but I do want a family with him. Part of the reason I have never wanted children is because I take medication for a mental health condition that runs in my family. This medication can cause birth defects if taken while pregnant. I also do not want to run the risk of passing this condition by having biological children through other means. I know that people with mental health issues have children every day and that my condition can be managed with proper treatment, but I'd feel so guilty if my children inherited it and were suffering. My partner says he understands and wants a future with me, but that having biological children is important to him. He has asked me about how I'd feel about having children using an egg donor and surrogate. I am not sure how I feel about it. I'm worried that I'd feel detached from the child. I also feel that, given the cost of finding an egg donor and surrogate, he might be better off ending this relationship to find someone who shares his same desire for biological children. There's no guarantee that we'd be able to afford such a great expense in our future. 
I have tried talking about this with him before, and it's clear he's only able to consider the best-case scenario while I'm concerned with the worst. What should I do? I think the first thing to do is talk to your doctor. Yeah. Talk to her. I mean, I think right now, letter writer, she's, like, stuck in a world of hypotheticals. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, maybe she already has and she already really understands. But I think, you know, what you've read, I know myself, like, what I've read online and, like, what is actually my medical reality, like, end up being kind of different things. Mm-hmm. And I think both her partner and herself can are able to make the a better decision together, like, I think actually understanding, like, the medical realities and risks mm-hmm. involved. And then you kind of get out of this, like, best case, worst case scenario and into this, like, likely scenario. Yes. Um, and that is, like, if you're, like, I I am up to see, like, what are the risks and, like, talk about it in, from, like, a from a standpoint in reality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think especially talking about it with your doctor in the following terms, like, I would be willing to entertain the possibility of, like, carrying a child myself, you know, if the following conditions were met. Um Knowing my conditions as you do and the medications that I take, you know, what do you think are the odds of that? And if your doctor says super low, you know, that can kind of answer your question. And if your doctor says, you know, well, here are the following uh, like things that we can do um, in in order to reduce risk or to uh, like if there are other medications, your your doctor will be the best person to talk to about that. Yeah. Your doctor's going to have that information. And again, maybe you've already done that and you're like, this is... Totally, I am up to date on all the information. But if you're not, now's a good time. Right. I think there are some other things in this letter that I'm just not sure if, like, uh, the husband, boyfriend, um, I guess. Partner. 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 Mm -hmm. um, Was really listening. You know, it kind of seems like sort of like dismissive. And and I don't like that for, like, the idea of, you know, getting married and – Committing long term. Yeah. yeah, Having children. So I think, yeah, absolutely. Like if there's some clarity you could be getting with your doctor, do that. Yeah. But don't just do it like because it's your job to get yourself up to the same speed as your partner. Right. Um, Your partner has done a great job advocating for himself so far. Yeah. And he can maybe like lay off that for a bit. Um, Yeah. So, you know, it's also really fair to say. Like, maybe you go ask those questions. Maybe you get all that information and you can say, like, I'm not trying to make any claims for other people. I'm talking about my capabilities, what I can take on and what I can't, what risks I am and am not willing to run. And I know that I don't want to add to my, like, already, like, sometimes difficult to manage conditions, Mm -hmm. the strain of pregnancy and the worry about passing this on to my kids. Mm -hmm. And so unless a doctor can guarantee me that there's a 100% chance that I can control the outcome, that's not a risk I'm willing to take. That Mm -hmm. doesn't mean you're like contributing to unnecessary stigma. That doesn't mean that you're like hurting other people with the same conditions you deal with. That's the choice that you're entitled to make about your own body and your own future. Mm -hmm. So I just want to be really, really clear there. If you ask those questions, you hear your doctor and you're like, I guess there's enough here that my partner would be okay with taking that risk. But if I'm not, that's what you need to listen to. Yes. Like more than anything. So, you know, as the same time that you are asking your doctor those questions, ask yourself seriously, like, do I think that if we had children that my partner had a biological connection to and I didn't, that I would grow resentful? 
or that a dynamic would kind of spring up where I felt like they were kind of his kids and not mine. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe talk to other people who have done something like that and ask, like, how did you think about that? How did you deal with it? What are the ways in which parenting has has helped you create a family bond that doesn't have anything to do with genetics? And and try to get a sense of, does that seem possible for me? Yeah. Maybe the answer will surprise you. Maybe it won't. Frankly, it, it, it in addition to the fact that you're like, I have a couple of reasons for not wanting to have kids this way or that way, mm-hmm. it also just sounds like you're not excited about the idea of having kids at all. But you really love this guy. And sometimes I hear from people who say, I didn't think about having kids. Then my partner really wanted them. I kind of changed my mind and things have been tricky, but it worked out or it ended up being great. Um And sometimes I hear from people who say, I never wanted kids. My partner wanted kids. I went along with it, and I'm very, very unhappy. And you can't always 100% predict what's going to happen to you. But, you know, if you can't get yourself to, like, 50% excitement, 50% anxiety, Mm -hmm. err on the side of not doing it. The thing that, like, the flags to me are just, like, the not listening, like, the... Um, the kind of single-mindedness about biological children, like, what about this? What about this? Right. Instead of, like, supporting and, like, really thinking about you as a partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, those those things are more alarming, you know? Like, yeah. th- those things, like, that's like, well, you know, I think, I think that requires further examination. And maybe it's not coming through in the letter. But I think as as you discover more, like, as you get out of the realm of, like, hypotheticals, Talk to your doctor about a medical reality and then have that conversation and see, are you really being supported and loved and protected, you know, and like and doing a good job of doing that for each other and really understanding what the other person needs. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't I don't see here that your partner is being like a jerk, but I do see that he's being a little um, maybe willfully obtuse yeah. and definitely optimistic too soon. Yeah. Like um, what what. He, what you need to ask from him is, I really know how important it is to you to have biological children. Mm-hmm. You've made that really, really clear. It may be that at some point our desires will become so incompatible that we will need to split up. Mm-hmm. And that would make me really sad. Mm-hmm. But I would rather you had the kind of children that you wanted mm-hmm. with somebody who was as excited about it as you were. Yep. And I need to really check in with myself and make sure that I'm not just saying yes to something that I think is going to be possibly painful, possibly against some of my values, possibly really expensive, possibly something that would make me feel alienated from our family structure. Um, Whether or not I felt good about that or not, it might just be my response. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you don't feel pretty excited about having kids in one of the ways you describe in this letter, and he's pretty insistent that that's what he needs to be happy, it would be such a better outcome for you guys to have a really sad breakup than to move ahead with kids that you're not excited about. Yeah. I, I, I get variations on this question a lot, and it's it's a little harder than like, I don't want kids. My partner does. What do we do? Yeah. Because this one's like, I don't know, maybe there's a version like where you guys figure something open out. To some parts of it. But I, you have to be met part way, yeah. right? Like, And then I think... Like I said, given medical realities, you have to be met part way. Yes. So if the if your partner's not moving at all, I think, you know, that is kind of probably indicative of the what how future decisions will be made in your relationship building together. Yeah. 
Yeah, I just want to point out too, again, some people feel really ambivalent about kids for a while and then that can later change. But I just want to say, looking through your letter, I see words like guilty, suffering, Mm -hmm. detached, Mm -hmm. great expense. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, that sounds a little bit further on on one side of the scale than just, oh, I'm really anxious about what's going to happen. Kind of like typical soon-to-be parent jitters. Yeah. It kind of sounds to me like you're maybe actually pretty clear on how you feel about it, but you're worried that you'll be hurting him by being clear about it. So if there's a possibility that you actually don't want children um, and you just don't want to say that because your partner was the first one to say, I really do. And you're like, well, I love him and he's great. And if there's a way that I can give him what he wants that's not too painful for me, I'd like to be able to do it. That's not the same thing as wanting kids. I agree. Yeah. Don't try to round yourself up into wanting kids. I agree. Huh. Yeah. Good luck. You know, it's just going to be a hard conversation. I mean, it's obvious they're going through a lot of hard conversations now. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure how much either one's leaning into it, but it's going to be a hard conversation. And I challenge the letter writer um, to be as honest as they can. Yes. Yeah. And, And really check in with yourself and make sure, am I rounding up in this conversation to make my partner happy? And a good test of that can be like, does something feel okay in the conversation when you're in front of each other? And then as soon as you're by yourself, you get overwhelmed by guilt, panic, fear, resentment, Mm -hmm. because that is maybe a clue that that's what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And good luck. All right. This next letter is at least a little more straightforward, which is great. Because it's always great when people tell you, here is how you can help me. Right? Then <laughs> yeah. you can just do that thing. You're like, here's a Band-Aid. Exactly. A cup of water. Yes. So the subject okay. is protecting my trans brother from our horrible parents. Dear do Prudence. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, yes. Protect your... This is going to be great. Please do. Yes. Okay, go on. <laughs> Thank you, Maddie. Dear Prudence, my youngest brother came out to me as trans this weekend. I'm so overjoyed for him, but I'm also terrified about my parents finding out. They are afraid of and angry at anyone who doesn't think or look like them. They have a history of reacting terribly when any one of their six kids breaks away from their version of morality, like when I told them I wasn't a Christian, or when they found out that one of my other brothers is gay. My brother asked me not to use his new pronouns, he and him, around my parents, which I completely understand. It's the best way to keep him safe. But I hate the thought of using old pronouns for him because it makes me incredibly angry that he's had to be closeted for this long because of my parents' inability to love and accept their children. Right now, my plan is to avoid pronouns while we're around my parents, but I'm nervous that my mom will pick up on it. The last thing I want to do is accidentally out him. I'm the oldest, and I love my brothers fiercely. The only reason I'm still civil with my parents is because I don't want to jeopardize my ability to spend time with my three younger brothers who are still living at home. I live five hours away, and I'm not able to help anyone financially in a way that would allow them to just move out. What can I do to protect my little brother? Do what your little brother asks. and That's a good rule with pronouns always. Yes. (laughs) I think it can be hard, too, because sometimes people can be really gung-ho of, like, I want to be so supportive. Right. And if somebody is like, I'm coming out, but I need to still be strategically closeted, I get that that's tricky. But you cannot be more gung-ho about your brother's pronouns than he is. Yes. And that's that's just going to go for supporting people kind of across the board. Yeah. Um, and, and I think if you, like, carefully avoid pronouns around your parents, in about 10 minutes, they will notice. That feels like an unuseful game. It, your brother made it clear. Yeah. It's, and I'm like, this is like, I think, you know, when safety is in question, like, 
protecting your brother's safety, I think, is, like, the most important thing here. Yep. Um, So beyond, you know, listening to your brother's wishes about pronoun use around your parents, uh, there must be some resource for helping him, especially if you feel like he might be, like, in danger. You know, it's one thing to, like, face parents' wrath and have them mad and But if you live, like, hours away and you're financially independent, it's very different than if you're living at home and they're like, great, I'm taking your phone and right cutting you off from other people in your life. I don't know how... Yeah, I don't know what the situation is at home and how bad it could get, but mm-hmm. if you feel like it could get really bad, like, I think... Even if you don't have the resources, there are resources you could turn to. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say before you go home, check in with your younger brother um, Mm -hmm. and say, you know, I'm going to keep you fully in the closet around mom and dad. Mm -hmm. I just want you to know I'm so protective of you. I love you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thank you for sharing this with me. And uh, I, I can't wait to use your pronouns elsewhere in a context where you feel safe and comfortable. Mm-hmm. And yeah, also ask, is there anything you need from me? Is there any mm-hmm. other way I can help support you? Um, you know, up to and including maybe like talking to him about how he wants to plan to, maybe he can't move out in the next month or two, but maybe he wants to in the next year or two. How can yeah. I help you with that? Um, and, you know, same thing. Listen, but don't do not do the pronoun game of like, no. where is name? Oh, I saw name a minute ago. Name was getting some juice. No. Because they're going to say, why are you doing that? And then you'll have to say, oh, you know, it'll, 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 it'll fall apart in 30 seconds. You can tell when people are avoiding pronoun usage and it's not a good cover. It's such a terrible idea. I, I understand the anger, though. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You could be like, I think, you know, yeah, be angry, but I think not at a risking your brother's safety. Yeah. And you can certainly, I don't mean to suggest that avoiding pronoun use is always a bad idea or always impossible or always signals that the game is afoot. I just mean at home among your family where you're all going to be referring to each other a lot because you're living in the same house, Mm -hmm. even if it's just for a weekend, it will be very clear if you like disrupt the script you've been using about that person your whole life. I also just feel like it takes a risk that he didn't ask you to take. Yeah, exactly. And again, I totally get that. It's like if somebody ever hurts one of my friends, I always want to do, I, I, you know, I often have the, the spiritual gift of being madder than my friends are at someone who hurt them. I'm good at that. But one of the things I've had to learn in my life, and the same goes for family, but one of the things I've had to learn is like when you're angrier than somebody else is on their behalf and you like go above and beyond expressing that anger, they usually aren't grateful because they didn't ask you to do that. Yeah. And it's not actually helpful. And it has more to do with you than it does with them. And again, like, I don't want to be hard on this letter writer. I think this letter writer hasn't done anything wrong. And I totally understand where they're coming from. But yeah, definitely, I've been, been like knocked back at times in my life where someone's been like, you need to stop. And I'm like, but I'm mad for you. And they're like, I'm not. Or like, I have yeah. other concerns. Nobody asked you to do that. Yeah. And I'm like, but I'm... I'm, I'm doing a good thing. And they're like, Imagine no. this wasn't about you. Oh, I, <laughs> Ava, how dare you? I hate this. Get out of my show. Imagine if this wasn't about you. I don't want to. <laughs> All right. You read this next letter, please. Okay. How to tell my parents I need therapy. You often tell people to seek therapy, which seems like great advice that I would also like to follow. My problem is that 
I'm not sure how to bring this up to my parents. I'm a college student who has struggled with mental health issues since grade school, and I would like to finally seek treatment. However, I'm still on my parents' insurance. Plus, I would like to have their guidance and support throughout this process. My college counseling system is free and confidential, but overburdened, and it's difficult to get an appointment if you aren't in crisis. My parents and I have mostly a loving, supportive relationship, except when it comes to mental health. They have a pretty dismissive, rub-some-dirt-in-it attitude towards mental illness, despite having family history of depression and anxiety on both sides. I grew up hearing that I should suck it up and get over whenever I was struggling, and my problems were often treated as an inconvenience or a sign of laziness. As a result, I've made an effort to hide my symptoms from them. How can I tell my parents that I want to get help for a problem that they have rarely seen me experience and maybe don't even believe exists? So I want to help you with using your parents' insurance to get treatment, and I want you to worry about getting their guidance and support later. Same. Much later. Yeah. Do you have any particular tips about how to go about this? Or you just, Maddie just pointed at me. <laughs> Take it away. Intensely. No, you do it. <laughs> so um, you should contact your insurance provider uh, and tell them that you want any, uh, it's called an explanation of benefits. And it's something that your insurance company sends out periodically to say, like, here is what you were using your insurance for. Mm-hmm. And say, when it comes to, like, whatever counselor you have chosen to see, I would like uh, those uh, explanation of benefits to be sent directly to me. Here is my address. Please do not send them to my parents. Yes. And you still, you know, you're still entitled to medical privacy HIPAA still applies to you, even if you are on your parents' insurance. So um, you will be able to find a therapist, figure out your copay, come up with a way to pay for that yourself, um, and then get the rest covered by insurance without getting your parents' permission. Hooray! Yeah. That's good. My idea was maybe, you know, some counseling and therapy will help you be able to tackle this difficult conversation with your parents. Exactly. I want you to get like a good six months of therapy under your belt before you worry about trying to get your parents' guidance and support. Also, I don't think you're going to get your parents' guidance and support. And what I want is for you to figure out a way to be okay without it. Yep. Um, It's going to be painful and it's going to be hard. But if you make your goal, get my parents to support my therapy, even though they've never, ever made any room for talking about mental health issues or mental health at all um, in my whole life, you are going to set yourself up for rejection and hurt and feeling abandoned because mm-hmm. they're just going to do that. Maybe they'll come around eventually. Yeah. I hope that, that that might be the case. But whether they do or they don't, you can still get therapy. You can still get the benefits of therapy and you don't have to wait for them to get on board. That's what it's like. You know, put your mask on before helping others. Put your mask on before helping others. I never get a chance to use that one, but this is actually the thing. Like, yeah. Or, or put your mask on before asking others to help you. It's like the mask is coming down in front of you, and what you want <laughs> is for your parents to put it on you. And yeah. they're like, we don't see the masks. And in fact, we're great <laughs> at breathing no air. And so it's not that your desire is like... Not like, these masks don't even inflate. Yeah. Like, I get where you're coming from. <laughs> I, I wish very much but that But it doesn't parents... need to inflate, like, oxygen and stuff. Like. Right, right. Like, I wish your parents were, if not supportive, right. at least mildly curious. Or like, oh, well, I guess let us know if it works out. Yeah. But I think you know how they're going to respond. And I don't think there's a way to avoid that. So go ahead and get it first. Um, and 
say to your therapist that one of your, you know, therapeutic goals might be, I want to figure out how to talk to my parents that I'm about therapy yeah, and figure out how I'm going to deal with it if they make fun of it or ignore it Build or the tools. say that it's a dumb idea because I'm going to keep doing it mm-hmm. um, and figuring out, you know, how many times like because it's it's good to push back and say, like, well, here's what I'm getting out of it. I really love it. Yeah. You know, a, a, a light argument or engagement with that idea is, is is good and healthy. But at a certain point, just going a hundred rounds on you should stop doing therapy. It's dumb versus it's not dumb. It helps me. Please support it. You're you're just going to be asking asking for more rejection. Yeah. So, yeah, get the you know find the therapist who accepts your insurance. Right. Contact your insurance company. Say I want all bills. I think all it's even a benefits. setting online. Yeah. So like, get your online account with Cigna or Aetna or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and then you select that you don't want your. It's called the explanation of benefits visible to any other person on the plan. Right. I mean, because this is you know, sadly common for lots of people who uh, are on their parents' insurance yeah. but need like some kind of health care their parents don't approve of, um, often birth control, often gynecological services, often like anything related to being LGBT, anything related to mental health. This is a common problem, and you're not the only young person who shares this particular need. So luckily, there are systems in place to protect your privacy, and that's great because I don't want you to have to worry about defending the idea of therapy before you've even had your first therapy session. Like, that's a lot. So... Um, yeah, I, I think you can, I think this is something you can do. Um, I think the goal of getting and finding a really good therapist, um, is an achievable one. And I think that it's also achievable to set certain boundaries in place with your parents such that they don't always like have infinite room to call you up and say, I think therapy is dumb and you should stop. Mm -hmm. But if your goal is get my parents to like the idea of therapy that you cannot control. Yeah. So. Good luck. And I'm glad that you have at least figured out ways to um, talk about your like the issues that you yeah, deal with, the I'm symptoms really you have. I'm proud of this letter writer. Yeah. Just like being like, I want to go and like and wanting to talk to their parents about it and get support, even though it seems unlikely. Like, I think there are lots of good things going on in your life and mm-hmm. you have like lots of good thoughts about things. Yeah. And I think. You know, none of none of the things on your to do list are bad. I think the big suggestion is to do the therapy first and uh, work on your parents' relationship during slash after. Yes, yeah, and that's gonna be that's gonna take a while. There may just be some. That's moments. hard. I mean, parents are hard. Parents are really hard. Um, and, and just kind of accepting sometimes that like I'm not gonna seek out rejection from my parents by like sharing really vulnerable details of yeah. my symptoms or therapy sessions yeah. when I know they're like walk it off, hit the showers, you're fine. Yeah. Rub some dirt on it. Oh, that's not a good... <laughs> like, <laughs> dirt is not good for mental health issues. Like, is it for your head or, like, just, like, wherever you feel the anxiety most? I I, I can't. I cannot <laughs> imagine. I have no idea. If you had pica, maybe. Is it pica or pica? Oh, The, the thing yeah, where you yeah. eat dirt? Yeah, where you need iron. Yeah. It's, a, like, a mineral deficiency. My grandmother had that back in, like, the 60s. Did she eat dirt? She did. She ate dirt out of, like, a potted plant. And then the doctor said, you need some more iron and solved that problem. I mean, she was getting it. She, I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, no. My is a wonderful woman. <laughs> I love her very, very much. And she does not eat dirt um, anymore. Maddie, thank you so much for coming on the show. 
Thank you for having me. It was really fun. It was fabulous. And I can't wait to see you in another two years. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Phil Circus. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton and production assistance by Taylor Simmons. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dearprudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more Prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash prudipod to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEAR. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute, tops. Thanks for listening. Listener.